Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to Who Am I This Time? with me, David Morrissey. Each episode, I'm talking to performers from film, television and theatre about one significant role in their career. It might not always be the role they're most famous for, but in each one, I'll be trying to find out about their preparation, the excitement and the sense of nostalgia that goes with any key role in an actor's lifetime. An actor, screenwriter and director, Charles Dance has an extensive list of credits across film, television and theatre. A stalwart of the Royal Shakespeare Company throughout the 70s and 80s, he also received the Critics Circle Best Actor Award in 2007 for his wonderful performance as C.S. Lewis in William Nicholson's Shadowlands. Some of his highest-profile film and television roles include Tywin Lannister in HBO's Game of Thrones, Dr. Jonathan Clemens in Alien 3, and Alistair Deniston in The Imitation Game. Most recently, he portrayed Lord Mountbatten in the third and fourth seasons of The Crown and William Randolph Hearst in David Fincher's Mank. The catalyst for this glittering career was being given the opportunity to play Guy Perry in The Jewel in the Crown in 1984. And I was thrilled to talk to him about it during lockdown earlier this year. I must say, there are a few technical issues at the start of this interview, but they disappear after a minute or so. I hope you enjoy so the, my guest this week is the wonderful Charles Dance, and we'll be talking about uh, the character of Guy Perron in the fantastic The Jewel in the Crown, which I saw recently. When did you last see it, Charles? I showed it to somebody four or four years ago. Um, not all of it, a bit of it. Uh, and I thought, I mean, I looked at it and I thought, my God, it's slow. But I'm only thinking, my God, it's slow because these days... We work so quickly, you know, it's the, the editing is very snappy in and out, don't it, you think? It's very seductive. It's very seductive. It's, it is, it's, you know, it's, it takes a while, it takes a bit for you to get into the pace of it because of, as you say, what we're used to seeing. Like I kept thinking, oh, we'll cut to the war now, we'll cut to yeah. the battle. And we never do. It is about people talking and listening. And yeah. the, the story has moved on via those great scenes. Yeah. So can I just uh, take you back though a little bit before? Yeah, go because on it. before before the production started, yeah, you'd been predominantly at the RSC. Had you you'd been in theatre before then? Yeah, no, I mean not not. Uh, let me think. Uh, not, not predominantly. Well, um, a fair amount. Yeah, I joined the RSC in 1976. Jewel in the Crown was 1980, if I remember rightly. Yeah. So. Yeah, I've been there for three or four years. Yeah. 
But did you ever play? Had you ever played a part that big, either on TV no. or in theatre? So no, my 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 first television was was Edward the Seventh, which was the first time ITV um, had kind of taken of the role of producing period drama. Before that, it was the prerogative of the BBC. And then there was ITV out at Elstree. Um, and um, I played one of the royal princes, the Duke of Clarence or something, which was like, I don't know, three or four episodes in that series, but certainly not... Um, you know, the size of Guy Perrin and the Jewel in the Crown. But, you know, I didn't... Guy Perrin didn't come into that until, like, episode 10. Yeah, I was going to ask what that was like, actually, to join. Yeah, well, you know, and about, all the time I'm thinking, if this is a turkey, I'm, I'm wasting a lot of time here, you know? <laughs> uh, but thank God it wasn't, yeah. But you joined the cast quite late then. I presume they would all, they'd all got the best rooms and the best hotels by the time you got Well, there. yeah, kind of. Yeah. But I remember we, you know, we had a read through right at the very beginning, um, which went on for days, obviously, because it's 14 hours. So you had uh, the whole script, you had all 14 before you'd started. Yes. Yes. None of this, you know, this pink draft, purple draft, <laughs> golden rod being shoved under your hotel room at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> no, it was, that was it. All done. Fantastic. So you were able to plot the whole thing in front of you. It was there. It was You had your Bible. Well, yeah, and I did. I remember because I was, you know, somewhat daunted by the size of this thing. Um, I did myself kind of like big emotional charts and pinned it up behind my hotel room door, every change of location. And I'd look at that and think, oh, yeah, this is what happened there. And then this is what happened there. And. You know, um, I don't know whether it did any good or not. I mean, I don't know. But, you know, I, I was kind of doubtful because that was the first time I'd done something of that size. And I thought I'd better, you know, have as many tools at my disposal as possible. And how did you hear about it? Was every actor up for it? Was it one of those ones where, you know, everybody was talking about it, that Granada were going to do this big show? Yeah, I, I, I got to hear about it as um, a girlfriend of a friend of mine said, you know, Granada are doing this fantastic series based on the Raj Quartet. I knew nothing about the Raj Quartet. She said, there's this great part in it that you should play. I said, oh, right, okay. And then, um, and then at, at that point, I did kind of dip in and out of the, the four books to find out who this character was. And she said that I would be absolutely perfect. Well, it was merit. The, the, the character that Tim Pickett-Smith played. Who's the uh, bastard? Said, oh, really? I see. <laughs> and, uh, um, but, then, uh, but then I knew that Tim had been cast to do that. Um, anyway, I banged on to my agent about this, and, and eventually she got me um, an offer, and I read it, and I thought, and as I was reading it, thought this, this other part came leap, kept leaping out at me. So I rang her and I said, well, it's very nice of Granada to offer me this, but actually I'd rather play this part. And she, she, and she said, she very grandly, she said, oh, darling, she said, look, you can't do that. You've been offered this really rather nice part in your first big television series. You know, I don't think you're in a position to do that. And I said, well, I've, I wish you would, because I would enjoy playing it. And I think this character is actually, he represents Paul Scott, 
who wrote the Raj who was the, who was the author yeah exactly um Anyway, I then went and met Chris Moran and Jim O'Brien and had a couple of meetings with them and, and eventually convinced them that I possibly could do it. And so that's how I ended up playing Guy Parent. But how were you convincing them? Because he he's a wonderful character. He's sort of us, isn't he? He arrives in the story. Yeah. He's essentially a good man. He's a strong man and he's, a, you know, he's an opinionated man, but he's, yeah. he's got a wonderful moral centre, which we haven't seen in his class before in the story, no. you know, because uh, Tim Pickett-Smith plays Merrick, who is, you know, a real shit and a sort of yeah. you know, racist and all. And Guy comes in and he's the best of us. How did yeah. you How did you convince them that you, you know, what what type of things were you saying to convince them that you were the right for the role? Well, it was, it was um, I mean, I, I think it was Chris Morahan, bless him, who, who needed the convincing. Jim had seen a television film I did about Siegfried Sassoon and Wilfred Owen um, mm -hmm. meeting at Craig Lockhart when they were both suffering from what's now called post-traumatic stress disorder. And, um, and, and, and in that script by the late George Baker, uh, Siegfried Sassoon had quite a wit, a biting wit, uh, because I think Chris Morahan wasn't convinced that I had much of a sense of humour. <laughs> and then it was Jim O'Brien who started talking about this other thing, the fatal spring, and persuaded Chris to see it. And then Chris sort of accepted the fact that, I, you know, I could... I had a reasonable sense of humour. But it's, you know, it's a wonderfully assured performance. Oh, but you must, have been, you must have been nervous going in. This was your first leading man. It's yeah. such a lavish, big-budget production. You know, Granada is, uh, even though it was a very sort of successful TV company, it was aiming high to knock BBC sort yeah. of uh, drama off its perch, wasn't it? Yeah. There was a lot going on there. Did you feel any of that pressure? Well, not really, no, because apart from... You know, I mean, that we in, in the cast, it, it was a wonderful cast and a big cast, but there was Peggy Ashcroft, mm -hmm. uh, Eric Porter. Geraldine James. Yeah, Geraldine, yeah, but when I mean, you come further down, me, Geraldine, Tim, Art Malik, um, Susie Wooldridge, um, Nick Farrell, none of us. Had, had had this kind of work before. So we mm -hmm. were kind of all in the same boat, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, Tim probably below Peggy Ashcroft and Eric Porter, he was the most experienced. But, you know, the rest of us, this was our break. Right. It really so, was for all So is there a camaraderie in that break, really? Yeah, there was, there was. And, and, and Geraldine James, she'd been out to India on Gandhi. Oh, right. So when we all arrived there... Um, she was kind of team leader, you know, and said, "Right, we've got to do this. We want to do that, you know." And off we went. And um, yeah, there was a there, there was a great camaraderie, very much so. And the other thing, I tell you now, this David, we we got on a plane, we flew to India, and we flew back economy, <laughs> and none of us complained about it. Right. Well, those are the don't tell everybody that. No, no, indeed. Well, there you go. <laughs> but how long were you there for? About four months. Wow. Yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah. The whole <laughs> thing took about 18 months, which is not bad for 14 hours of film. No, not at um, all. But, you know, we were do doing things like I 
I'd throw a ball to somebody in India and the other person would catch it in Manchester, you know. Well, that's what I was going to ask you, because you come in and out uh, location-wise from... Was it simply interiors in Manchester, exteriors in India, or was it a bit more... No, there were some interiors in India, but but mostly, as you say, we, you know, all the exteriors, most of the lavish exteriors uh, were in India. But some of the stuff, like, like... the interiors of, of palaces with long, wide corridors and lots of white marble all over the place. That, that was in India. Um, but then we came back to Granada Studios in Manchester, which I, and I don't know whether you know this, but, you know, the studio burnt down. Yes. There was this enormous fire because I got back to the hotel that most of us are staying in, and it was Chris Morahan looking very pale, you know, and I said, you all right, Christopher? He said, no, we have been a bit of a problem, been a fire at the studio. Uh, it's burnt down. Um, but um, thankfully, all the plans for the sets were in a steel case. And so they were able to get those and rebuilt. And we were up and running again in 10 days. It was incredible. And from because now, of course, you direct yourself. I mean, at the time, with because uh, it was Chris and Jim were the directors... Yeah. How, what type of, would they give you emotional sort of notes or was it basically they would leave the character to you? Were they directing it like a theatre piece? Because there, there's big dialogue scenes between people and I think, you know, very experienced actors who have come from the theatre, would they direct it a bit like a theatre scene? Um, no, not really. Uh, you know, Chris um, had had a pretty fine body of work in television and mm-hmm. film. Um, and, but, and, and, and he had a very precise way of working and he'd come onto the set and, and he had his shot list for the day and he would basically ex- tell us what he was planning to do. Um, and so we would work with him that way. Um, Jim O'Brien would come onto the set and show us the space and rehearse and see what we wanted to do and then decide from that how he was going to shoot it. So we did two totally different ways of working. Um, And although Chris most of the time seemed to be very much kind of the colonel in charge and I know best, there were one or two occasions, one especially when I'd done a scene with Tim and I wasn't very happy with it. And I spoke to Chris later in the day and I said, I really blew that scene. I mean, I didn't get the most out of it, you know. And he had this very strange way of looking at you, down, kind of down his nose, you know. Do you know, really? And he said, um, uh, all right, well, leave it with me. And then two days later, we reshot the scene because I asked him to. Doesn't happen very much now, does it? You know, it you... doesn't, no. But yeah. it was, would you say it was the job where you found out about filmmaking and the camera and how to work with camera? <sighs> Um, yes. Well, yes and no. Yeah, mostly yes. But, I, you know, I went to art school. I didn't go to drama school. Mm-hmm. And I did graphic design and photography. So I'd been taking photographs for a while. Mm-hmm. And I like to think I knew the language of a lens. Um, and, you know, I, I, I know what different lenses can do. Um, 
And I would just, you know, watch the DOP and the operator. And, um, and yes, I did learn a lot, but I also really fell in love with the whole business of filmmaking. I love it. And I know you do. That whole paraphernalia, the mechanics and everything, you know, much more than theatre, to be honest. Yes, me too. But what about yourself in the frame? I mean, it's one thing knowing what the frame is, but yourself in it. Was it? Did you watch yourself on the monitor? Were you watching dailies or? Um, um, a bit. Um, I would. I would watch myself to see. Um, to, to, you know, if I thought now, should I have been doing? You know, if I, if there were doubts in my mind, I'd go and have a look at the monitor. But I, I, I'm not wild about looking at myself too much. You, know, you watch I'm better at it now. You know, I'm 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 better at being objective now. Mm. And uh, do you watch finished thing? Do you do, is it once it's done, it's done, or do you watch? I mean, we all have to go to premieres and stuff. But do you ever revisit any of your work? Um. What do you mean by revisit? Well, do you would you ever sit down and watch something you did a couple of years ago just to see what it was like? Yeah, I've done that. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, there are times when you. I mean, I I, I don't know about you. I'm. Um, I, I suspect you're the same as me that you know you never think you're good enough, really. Or I I don't. Mm-hmm. And you have a look back at something and you think. Actually, I was. I don't want to be too hard on myself. It wasn't bad. Then. Yeah, I need time to have passed. I mean, I think yeah. when I'm when I'm looking at things sometimes and I'm too close to it, yeah, I get frustrated because I think, oh, I could have done this. I wish I'd done that. Whereas when when I know that there's nothing I can do about it and it's gone, yeah, then I tend to relax and watch it a little differently. Yeah, yeah. What were yeah. the um, what were the particular difficulties of filming on location then, and you know what was it eighty early eighties? I mean, yeah. in India, what what were the real difficulties for you lot? Uh, the heat, mm-hmm. um, and in India, despite the the the, the hugeness of Bollywood, uh, Indian filmmaking, especially for for a Western crew, anyway, you you just have to accept that. If you you expect something to be done today, well, it won't be done until tomorrow. Basically, mm. you have to take that on board. All of our HODs were English, um, British, um, which which tends to happen, you know, on a British movie being shot on location somewhere. Um, but uh, wherever I've been, the whole business of making a film, whether it's for the cinema or for television. It's kind of exactly the same wherever you go, really. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, each member of that crew is only as good as their last job. Um, so it was, it was the heat more than anything, and also because we were all out there um, being part of this extraordinary family. So there were there were quite a lot of days off. And people would go off on adventures, you know. And were you allowed to just go off? You you didn't have to tell yeah. everybody where you were. You could just no, go. Yeah, you know, not tell everybody, but certainly say, look, you know, like we're going to go. Like Nick Farrell and I went off somewhere uh, because we'd heard about this particular tribe, um, and we 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 had this kind of long weekend in this this the hotel. This we called the Savoy Hotel. 
and all the rooms were little individual bungalows. I had my bungalow, and Nick Farrell had his. And then we would meet and play snooker in the evening, and then go off and see these people that we'd been there to see. But it was That's before it was before mobile phones. So did you have to yes. keep in touch with like the production that you couldn't just disappear, could no. you, or could you? The production were incredibly generous. Oh, I see what you mean. Mobile phones contacting them. Mm. Um, uh, no, they were just very trusting. I suppose quite risky when you think about it. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but as far as staying in touch with people at home, Granada were incredibly generous in many ways. We were all allowed one phone call home, courtesy of the of the company from whichever hotel we were in, and you could spend half an hour, 45 minutes on the phone, and Granada picked up the bill for it. You know? Great. Yeah. You, you do have that continuity thing of, you know, exteriors or some interiors there, and then uh, back in Manchester. How, how, how far was the time? So what, where would you be? So would you could literally be walking through a door and it would be months between you yeah. going from one inside to the other? Literally, yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, and yeah. how would you keep an eye on what you needed to do as the continuity person there? But did you, would you, do you have a Bible running alongside your script about things like that? Are you someone who makes notes or is it just reading the script? I, I made notes at that time. Yeah, sure I did. But we were also um, encouraged and able to look at the footage that was shot in India that mm. we were now going to complete back in Manchester. Mm. So, and, you know, we would. We would look at that an hour before shooting the tail end of the scene back in Manchester. And were you aware as you were doing it, the the enormity of what you were doing? That you, I mean, it, it's a career changing role in a way, wasn't it? I mean, yeah. did you know that? I mean, it, not that one can carry that, but you, were you aware of what it could do? Um, not aware of it, but you hoped for what it could do. Mm-hmm. But none of us were aware of it. I don't think. Not at all. And no. when did you start to get a smell that this was starting going to change your life in some way? Well, when when the thing started, like way before I appeared in it, and I thought, mm. oh wow, and this is becoming, and you know, people were cancelling appointments so that they could see this week's episode. You know, yeah. this is before the days of box sets. Okay, so people stuck with it. They also stuck with it in spite of ads every mm. you know 15 minutes or whatever um and it became this kind of cult viewing thing even before i joined it so you know i came in on the i, I jumped did on you the bandwagon did you ever have that thing of thinking oh this is going really well and i haven't turned up yet and when i turn <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, um, yeah, there was a bit of that, you know, thinking, oh, blimey, you know, uh, I hope I don't blow it. And uh, But it anyway. did change your, I mean, it must have changed your life. I mean, how, how, what, what were the immediate effects of just simply like walking down the street or whatever? How did that happen? Well, to you? Th- there was that. And also my, my agent at the time, and, you know, she was, for me then, she, you know, she was wonderful, but... Um, there were a few mistakes made in as much as she encouraged me to do masses of publicity. You couldn't pick up a magazine Mm -hmm. from the Women's Weekly to the Financial Times, you know, um, without me being splurged all over it. It was ridiculous. 
Um, and I, that, that's, that was a lesson I learned from, from that, you know. Mm. Oh, no, yeah. no, no. Keep a low profile. <laughs> but also, you know, he is, he's a good man. And yeah. I have to say, because, you know, I'm a big fan of your career, obviously, you tend to, put, like I do, you tend to play quite a lot of villains. We tend to get, who they yeah. seem to get the best tuned, really, sometimes, I believe. But is that, he's one of the few really good, morally good men you've played. He is, indeed. Yeah, I don't know why. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm probably not as choosy as I should be, you know. <laughs> I mean, oh, well, um, I'm, I, you know, I think... Without sounding a bit kind of martyr-like here, you know, I mean, I'm lucky enough, and so are you, to be doing a job that we love. Um, and unlike a lot of people who just do a boring, terrible job because they have to live. Mm -hmm. and, um, but, you know, we're in this very fortunate position of being able to do something that we love and get paid for it. Mm -hmm. And I've always thought, you know, it's... Who am I to turn down work? Mm. There's people unemployed who can't get work. I'm being offered the work. Um, I mean, there are times, there, there, there are things that I, I do turn down if they're absolute garbage. <laughs> but, you know, if they're two or three parts decent and it's maybe going to a location that I've not been to or a, yeah. an actor that I want to work with or a director I like and the scripts are okay, then, I, you know, I, I tend to go off and do it. And consequently... Um, having done one villain reasonably well, odds are you're going to be asked to do another one. Yes, so, that's, that, that, is the that is the truth, isn't it? It's like yeah. what people see you for. Yeah. And then it's yeah. up to you whether you wanted to sort of change that or not. But, but yeah. you said before that you, you trained as a graphic designer and photography, wasn't it? So where did the acting bug come? When did you think, oh, this is a job I could do? Well... I mean, we opened up a whole can of worms. Here, oh, sorry. David. No, no, it's all right. No, because, I mean, you know, and this is kind of old stuff, really, but um, I, um, when I was at primary school and we used to have little school plays, like when I was 10 or 11 or whatever, I, I used to love that and had a lot of fun. And then when my adolescence started, uh, from somewhere, when nobody knows where, I developed a stammer. <laughs> And that stuck with me right through till I was about 18 when adolescence started to come to an end. And that's just the way my adolescence manifested itself. For some people, it's acne or bad behavior or whatever. With me, I stammered. So all the confidence that I'd had as a kind of showy-offy kid, that went. And I'd, the thought of trying to act was beyond me. But then when the stammer started to go, and I was, I was at art school then, then there was a college theatre group that I got involved with and started and spent more time with them than I did trying to come up with a house style for British Telecom or a series of book cover illustrations or something. And I thought, this is not what it, this, this is what I want to do. And I rang a friend of mine who I know had been coached by a couple of wonderful old men of the theatre down in Devon. They'd coached him for his RADA audition. And I found out where he was. He was spear carrying at the RSC. And I rang him up and he rather grandly, you know, said, hello, and this room voice. And I, and I said, hello, Stephen. And there are two guys who you work with down in Devon. Yeah, why do you want to know? And I said, well, because I think I want to be an actor. Anyway, so he gave me the number and I rang them and met them. And I spent about two years with them. 
Um, and they taught me what I would have learned had I gone to drama school. I Fantastic. Hope. And did you go from working with them into the RSC? Was that, that was no, you? God no. I went from working with them to being a dresser in Fiddler on the Roof. Okay. I, I dressed all the chorus boys. <laughs> and I used to go home and say to my wife, and, you know, they're all very nice. I hope they like you. You know, I think they like me. Um, and I went from there to being a stagehand on Canterbury Tales. Uh, and then I got a job touring. Uh, it was advertised in the stage, Remember the newspaper, the stage. The that, stage you know, newspaper, yes. That we would never own up to buying, but, you know, would secretly read. <laughs> and... Um, and it was it was a it was a tour of a play called It's a Two Foot Six Inches Above the Ground World, which the title alludes to the height of the average person's genitalia from the ground. That was right. the title. But I was an acting ASM, and because I had a car, battered old car, but a car nevertheless, they made I was an acting DSM. So I got a couple of extra quid a week for that, I think. And I had a few lines. And then and then I did 16 weeks of weekly rep. Which nobody does anymore. Uh, where was that? Know? Oh, Prince of Wales Theatre, Colwyn Bay. All right. And you learn the lines and avoid the furniture, and and you work fast, and it hones your technique. And then it was a few years later that I was offered an audition for the RSC. I did pantomime and various other things in between. Yeah. Because you're known for playing, you know, you've played a lot of toffs, but you're not a toff yeah. at all, are no, you? No, not at all. I'm common as muck, probably. <laughs> probably more so than you. Um, <laughs> we'll be back with more chat after this. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, you're listening to Who Am I This Time? With me, David Morrissey. Now, back to this week's episode. But, but was that, was that, was, uh, you'd say about working with those guys, would, did they work on your voice and your, did they, enunciation? Yeah. And, and oh, yeah, we had to work on the voice a bit because 
uh, um, until I was four, we lived just outside Birmingham. And then my father died. Mother married my, the, the lodger who became my stepfather. And we moved down to Plymouth. Now, I don't know whether you've ever been to Plymouth. Have you been I've to not, Plymouth? No, I've not okay, been to Plymouth. It's, it's a naval port, right? But it sits just on the border between Devon and Cornwall. So, so you've got a bit of Devon and you've also got a bit of Cornwall, but you've also got other influences because it's a dockyard, Devonport dockyard in Plymouth. And the Plymouth accent's terrible. It's like that. I mean, it's really lazy. You know, what are you looking at, boy? You know, what are you looking at, right? And you couple that with a Birmingham accent from the Midlands and you make the most terrible noise, you know. So I, I can't remember what my voice was like, but it was, it, it was pretty, it was an awful noise. But my mother, you see, my mother came from the East End of London and she, 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 she'd spent her life trying to better herself, really. And um, because my father was, she married above her station, right? She, she came from the East End of London. She met my father. He was a, a, a widower. She was a waitress. Um, and he, he had done some recitations. In fact, I got a medal that he had for elocution, right? So um, she was always encouraging me to speak better, despite the fact that she came for Beft or Green and spoke like that when she was a kid, you know. Um, so then when I went to see Leonard and Martin, the two old men, yeah, the, the, the first thing they did was basically try and clean up my voice because they were of the opinion that rather like a painter painting with dirty brushes, if he doesn't clean his brushes between each colour, then the colour is going to be tainted with the remnants of what's left in the bristles of the brush. Well, maybe, you know, I mean, that's okay. Um, I love that. I love that picture. That is a wonderful picture to paint. Yeah, I think but, that's you know, really... I mean, I, I know a lot of actors um, who've got pretty broad accents who can turn it on and off just like that. You know, there are some who can't. But um, it worked better for me, actually, because I had a lot to learn. But you also said, because your mother was in service, wasn't she? So she worked yeah. for aristocrats. So you, you were observing yeah. them quite, from a, quite a young age, weren't you? Well, yes, yes. Well, yes and no. Um, she didn't, she, she'd, she'd worked in a lot of restaurants. Um, but then she became uh, the kind of head housekeeper and bottle washer for, for an aristocratic family in Devon. And part of her payment for the job was a tied cottage on their estate. So, yes, I was able to view them at close quarters. But before that, um, no, I wasn't. Mm. Um, but like a lot of actors, there's something about inhabiting other people. Yeah. And there's something about observation that we observe people all the time. Were you aware of yourself as a young age, observing people differently from your friends in, in a way? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, um, especially when because my 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 home life was quite claustrophobic. You no, know? um, my mother worked until she was like seventy three, um, and although she wasn't a single mother because she'd married again, she was a working mother, and my stepfather worked as well. Um, so you know there wasn't kind of much partying going on. And we, we didn't have a television until I don't know how old I was, or a telephone for that matter. 
But when I was about when I was 15 or 16 in Plymouth, which is a strange place, um, a whole bunch of us used to go to this place called the El Sombrero, which claimed itself to be the, the first espresso coffee bar in the southwest of England, right? And people flocked to this place, and we'd sit there, you know, sort of talking rather grandly about the evils of the world and, and, and drinking coffee out of Pyrex coffee cups and, and, you know, listening to the Rolling Stones and Manfred Mann and planning and trying to work out whether we could go on Aldermast and ban the bomb marches and all of that. So then I was mixing with people from totally different backgrounds to mine. And that was where my observations started, you know? I mean, people with, people with long hair and Levi's and stuff. And I thought, oh, what's all this? You know, mm. great. Yeah, a different world. Yeah, yeah. 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 And when you stepped into theatre, because usually, you know, our first introduction is via the theatre. Yeah. And we're doing, a, and you've done a lot of great theatre. I was lucky enough to see you in Shadowlands and Coriolanus in London and many other things. But, I mean, you have a great rehearsal time in theatre. Yeah. We don't, we don't tend to rehearse on, in television. Do no. you miss that rehearsal in TV? Or, or are you someone who just likes to get up and do it? I like, well, um, it depends how it's done, how the rehearsal is done. You know? I mean, I don't like, if you're doing a television or a film, go, going and spending a week in a rehearsal room and somebody's marked out the floor, you know, this is the set. I, 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 I really don't see the point of that at all. Um, and, um, and very rarely are we allowed the luxury, if that's the right word, of a rehearsal when you're doing a film or television um so most of the time um i really don't like it because there's that there's that spontaneity of stepping in front of a camera and as long as you know your lines as long as you've done your work off the set and you come to the set bringing something with you um then i think rehearsal is sometimes can be more of a hindrance than a help and how can a director get in your way? I mean, I'm interested about how you direct as well, directing actors, but how, how sometimes directors can get in our way a little bit as well, can't we? How, how, how is that? In, yeah, well, it's basically, you? you know, I mean, I, I, hope, I presume you feel the same way, but there's, there's basically two kinds of directors, apart from good and bad. Um, you know, there's the ones who, who, who try to put performances in you, and they're the ones who create an environment to bring performances out. I prefer to work with the latter, um, depending on who the director is and what their reputation is. You know? I mean, I've just done a film with David Fincher. I did his first film 30 years ago. I think he's a genius. Yes, man. Um, and, you know, he comes onto the set and he's a film animal from the top of his head to the soles of his feet and knows exactly what he's doing. And we'll go to 30, 40 more takes and we whinge about it. But eventually, you know, the, the, the end result is a rather wonderful film. Um, so we only whinge a little bit. But if, if it's, if, you know, if it's a director who's way down the scale from David Fincher, I, you know, I'm, and, you, and I start <laughs> to think, you don't know your ass from a hole in the ground, actually. Mm -hmm. So I'll pretend to be listening to you, but I'll kind of do my own thing, you know? But also that, you know, with something like Fincher, you're presumably on a big old 
budgets of a film, you know, there's a, the, it's got yeah. all the bells and whistles on. But you've done yeah. some very interesting independent films as well, haven't you? I mean, that's there's a choice of work there that you're getting out of how people might see you or something. You're challenging yourself in that work as well, aren't you? Well, I try to, yeah. Um, and um, most of the time, the, those forays into low-budget independent filmmaking have, have, have been rewarding, and the end result has been okay. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you 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 just adapt to whatever the rules of that particular ball game are. You know, I mean, you've the same. You've done big-budget stuff, and you've done relatively small-budget stuff, and you just. You adapt, don't you? You adapt, but it's also, I, th- I think what the interesting thing is, because, and it's also talking to other actors about this, is how you protect yourself. There's a very fine line between, even now I want to keep hold of some sort of security about yeah. myself. I want to keep hold of that security. But actually, I sort of know that really good work is outside of that security. If, if you can make me get a little bit braver. But that bravery sometimes is not between take one and five. It's between take five and 60. And if, uh, you know, if I've got a big budget, then I can get to 60. But usually on television, I'm having to do a lot of work before I get to the set to give myself the choices I need. Yeah. And after six or seven takes, the choices are just going to be the same unless we've got all day to experiment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but it 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 comes down to trust invariably, you know. Um, I mean, we've we did something together not so long ago, right? Um, and you 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 have to you have to trust the director, and sometimes the trust is misplaced. <laughs> oh, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And, but, some, and sometimes the trust is, it might be with the director, but it's also sometimes with your fellow actor. I mean, I've been in situations where I've been with another actor and thought, I don't know how to, I don't know what's going on here. I don't know how to negotiate this set with this person in front of me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's hasn't just happened experience. in this country much. No. It it, it, no. It, it, it's happened for me two or three times in America because, you know, there's a totally different attitude there. Um, you know, you playing a scene with another actor, it's a two-hander. And in America, it's kind of like the Battle of Waterloo, may the best man win. Mm. Whereas in this country, we tend to be quite idealistic. And the more I give you, the more in return you will give me. And the end result is a better scene. And I would much rather that what's on the screen is as a result of one's relationship with one's fellow actors than in spite of it. But in America, a lot of the time, it's in spite of it. But is that as simple as coming from a theatre tradition? I don't know that it is. I think uh, as far as the the difference between America and England goes, which is what I'm talking about, I think it's because the competition there is so fierce and it really is every man for himself. Um, I mean, you know that that, that actors who are going for an audition, you know, during the pilot season... You know, I mean, if they're playing a character who's 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 very thin and they happen to be a bit overweight, they'll put themselves on a crash diet, and they'll and then they'll put the right clothes on. And if they've got to have a hang, if a character's got a hangover, they'll go and get drunk and have a hangover and turn up for the audition. 
I know. Well, I remember you know, being. I remember being the first time I went for pilot season in America many years ago, and I got the couple of pages through. I was told to go to this place. I didn't know how to get there. I wasn't driving. I had to go. Right. I didn't know where I was. Walking through many a car park, and I got eventually got to the casting director's office. And I sat in this room and this guy came in, this other actor, and he destroyed the waiting room. He was so he was so in character, so angry. He started kicking the table and punching the water filter and stuff. And I thought, I'm in the wrong job. I'm yes. absolutely in the wrong job. Yeah, yeah. And also what he did, but by the time he got into the room to do it, he was spent. He was absolutely yeah. gone. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> but yeah. it was so different to what I'd been used to here in the UK. It was such yeah. a different craft. Really. Yeah, yeah, it is. Do you still suffer from nerves at all? Or did you ever... Sometimes, oh yeah, oh god, yeah, um, yeah. Sometimes um, in the theatre, more so. I feel much more secure in front of a camera on a set. Um, it, it, but um, but I haven't done for a long time. I mean, mm -hmm. I did. Uh, I was doing a play at the Bush years ago, and for some reason, um, I started getting anxiety attacks. I don't know why. Um, and I actually went to a hypnotist to get over it. And I don't know whether she did hypnotize me or whether it was just the fact that we were in a very hot room. Mm. You know, the radiator was turned full on and she spoke in this really stupid voice that she didn't have before. <laughs> and I went to sleep. And maybe it's kind of woke up and thought, oh, I'm over that now. I, <laughs> I don't know. But, but no, that, that kind of petrified nerves. Mm. No. Um, there are times when... You know, you, you you know you have good nights and not such good nights in the theatre. And on mm. those bad nights, I, I used to pray that there'd be a bomb scare and there'd be an announcement and everybody would be sent home, you know, and yeah. we'd have an early bed. But on the nights that it does go well, of course, it's great, but it's on those nights where it doesn't go well and your timing slips, you know, and maybe the audience is not aware of it, but but we are. And the long runs. I mean, do you think do you well, think doing a long run is over for you? Do you think if someone came to you and gave you a great part for six months in the West End, would you have to think twice about that? I I, I would have to think twice about it. You know, I mean, we did Shadowlands for six months. Mm. You know, sobbing my guts out every night. Um, I'd like to do a comedy for a, a longer run, but you know, I, I don't get offered comedies very much. But. Yeah, I did a comedy not so long ago. I did um, um, Hangman by Martin. I know. I'm told you uh, were wonderful. Uh, oh, Forgive me for not seeing it. You yeah. were at Wyndham's, my favourite theatre. It was. It was great. Yeah, and, uh, Martin McDonough. It was just fantastic, and I, it was. Just, and it is like. That drug that you get, laughter, you become such a whore to it. <laughs> yeah. You have to be very careful. But it does make the time go quicker and you you ride it in a way. Yeah. I remember yeah. Jonathan Price talking about doing, he was doing the Scottish play on Broadway and he went down the road to see, I think, I can't remember what it was, but it was a musical. This was before yeah. he'd done Miss Saigon. Yeah. And he, at the end of it, he got he, he was watching the audience stand up four or five times, giving a standing ovation for this. And he thought, oh, no, I want this. I don't want tears and appreciation. Yeah. I want this type of adjuration, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, maybe we can get you on a musical. Oh, well, I don't know about that. But <laughs> did you ever see the play What I Wrote? 
I did, yeah. Yeah? yeah. But I was part of that pool of people, you know, and David Pugh used to yes. ring me up and say, can you do Thursday night on Friday? I said, yes, absolutely. Gosh. Because, you know, I mean, it was a... It was a rollicking comedy and yeah you know the audience is on its feet i think i saw it with twiggy at the night oh holiday. right okay yeah. well then all manner of people yeah. did it you know yeah, and you'd no, go in the, you know i didn't go into the theater till about nine o'clock you know <laughs> and then you kind of leave at ten past ten having had the piss taken out of you all night long <laughs> and, um, and it, it was it was fantastic Right. And what about reviews? I mean, as a younger actor, were they? Did they ever? Did you read them? Did they ever knock you or anything? As a young actor, yeah, absolutely, I did. You know, because uh, I wanted my ego stroked. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, it only takes a couple of bad reviews to stop you reading them. Yeah. So you know, yeah. But also in theatre, sometimes you can get a good review and they can say, "I love this bit when he did that," and then it ruined it for you yeah. completely. Oh, Fake off. Yeah, fatal. Not think, this is the bit everybody laughs at and then no one laughs. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And looking back at Jewel and the Crown, I mean, what, what did you really, what did it teach you as an actor, if, if you could be succinct about that? Was it just about, because as I said, it's such an assured and wonderful sort of um, gentle performance, really. Well, oh, good. Well, I'm glad you think so. Um, I just, I, I, I learned pretty, pretty early on, the meaning of less is more, you know? Yes. Earlier on, we were talking about looking at oneself. And I would, I would, you know, maybe say to Jim or Chris, you know, can I have a look at that? And have a look and, and, mm-hmm. and you think, oh, yeah. Because when I blink, you know, it's like a barn door closing. <laughs> I've got quite heavy eyelids, you know, and you begin to look at your face um, and 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 see what different size lenses can do, and you know. And I would listen to people who knew more about it than me. I can remember hearing somebody say, "You know, if they're going to put an eighteen millimeter lens that close to my face, there better be a really good reason." Mm. And I'd think, "Oh, yeah, okay." And then I would see the results of an eighteen millimeter lens too close to your face, and think, "Right." I know to question that next time, you know. But it was the fact that the less you do, the better it is. And as a director now, writer, director, you produce your own stuff as well. I mean, what what are you trying to do with your actors? I mean, you directed Judy Dench and Maggie Smith. I mean, that must be quite daunting. I mean, what I didn't have much directing to do there. But but what are you what are you trying to you know what is that offering you that just acting isn't. What are you getting from that? Yeah, I, I just, I, I am, um, well, I, I, I try to be the sort of director that I like to work with, right? Which is to basically say, here's the playground. Um, you know, we all know what we're doing. I mean, we had a bit of a read through beforehand, just so that we established that we're all singing from the same hymn sheet. We've all got the same thing in mind. Um, but then to get onto the set and say, well, just play, you know. And um, as I say, I, I, I didn't have much to do with Judy and Maggie. I mean, they would come onto the set. I mean, I would talk about positioning and, you know, it'd be better if, and you know, could you sort of not look away at that point because I'm going to cut in there and, um, you know, but... 
But but then you're de- you're dealing with different egos, aren't you? You're dealing with a different a crew of egos rather than just actors. I mean, I remember yeah. I directed a television years ago, and I said to a, a director I respected, "What should I do?" And he said, "Look, it's all pick your battles and be careful about the egos." And I said, "Well, I know actors." He said, "Oh, I'm not talking about the actors. The actors are fine." Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. I know. I, I they, they. Yeah, I did have. Um, um, I had a bit of a problem with with one of the crew, right. um, but and and I had a I had a great DOP, but um, he turned out to be the slowest DOP in the world, and mm. you know I, I was dropping scenes left, right, and centre, um, and I bumped into Alan Parker a few weeks after it, and you know he said, "How'd you get on with Bijou?" His name's Peter Bijou. He is a wonderful cinematographer. And a really terrific guy, but he's of that generation where you showed production the first day's rushes, and they were so impressed that they threw more money and more time at you. And I was having to say, Peter, we have no more time, we have no more money, and we're averaging nine setups a day, we should be averaging 19 setups a day. You know, it's cool, man. No, it's not cool. <laughs> um, so, you know, those are the battles I had. And, and, and you know, one or two people who thought, well, you know, I've been doing this job on the crew for 30, 40 years. He's just an actor. What does he know, you know? And, 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 and I can remember asking somebody to do something and I'd really had to fight for him to agree to do it. And he came back to me with, well, it's your film. And I'd say, yeah, it is my film. Yeah, it is. And if I blow it, it's my responsibility, not yours. But this is what I want you to do. So, I mean, in that situation as a director, you really, really have to love your material, don't you? You yeah, really, yeah. Because you're going, you are going to battle with it. Yeah, yeah. Sure, and, and I think when I've been asked to direct in the future, I will look at something. I think I'd act in that, but I can't direct it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I like the character, I can do the character, but the whole story, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not in love with it enough to sort of put it on my back every morning. Sure, sure, yeah, you know? yeah. And when and you yeah, went yeah, back yeah, to acting, you, sorry, I was going to say when you went back to acting after directing, did you just think, oh, I'll just put my feet up? <laughs> did it? Was it like so well, easier? Just acting no not really because i you know before i went into it i i just thought i have i got the stamina to do this because you know we we get time to sit around and mm. wait at the dop sorting himself out and, uh, and we get days off and so on whereas if you're directing some there are no days off and you're there from before breakfast till wrap um but I, for me, I found it so energizing, and the days flew by. That's it. You know? Yeah. That thing of time. I remember as an actor, you know, you'll look at your watch and it's eight in the morning, and then two hours later, you'll look at your watch and it's only half eight in the morning. Yes, as a director, yes. a director, you look at your watch, it's eight in the morning. Ten minutes later, it's nearly five to yeah. seven in the evening. You know, and you're yeah. like, what? What's yeah. happened? Yeah. 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 It's just crazy. Yeah, it is. Yeah. But it is addictive, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yes, it is. I mean, I've been, there's two things I've been trying to get off the ground now because this is the worst time yes. to be trying to get anything off the ground because, you know, the, 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 the protocols that we're now having to work with uh, are prohibitively expensive 
for a lowish budget independent project. I mean, if you're a major studio or you're Netflix or somebody, you know, you can carry that extra expense. But, you know, I mean, it's putting, you know, it puts a million on the top of a budget. Charles, it's wonderful to speak to you. Thank you so much. And I, I, I must say, I, you know, one of the great things about doing the podcast is going back and seeing some stuff. But I've watched all of Jewel in the Crown and I just, wow. it, it was just, it, it was wonderful to see it again. And it's right. such a sophisticated piece of storytelling. It is, isn't it? And yeah. there's no, yeah. you know, you, you sometimes you revisit those things and there's the wobbly set moments and the stuff you have to forgive. But actually you just, you're in there. It's so well done and beautifully performed by all of you, I thought. Oh, bless you. Oh, well, David, look, yeah. I think it's great you're doing this. Thank well, you. No worries. Well, thank you very much. All right, mate. I'll see you on the Heath sometime. Who Am I This Time is a Just Voices and Doolally production. Produced by Simon Lennigan. Music by Greg Hatwell. Edited and mixed by Russ Keffert at Audio Egg. And presented by me, David Morrissey. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.